in our own lives to say that we take up a cross and deny ourselves and follow our Savior. It is the power of the gospel, the, the power of salvation to all who would believe that you have given us, Lord, to both believe and instill in our own hearts by your Spirit and then to also proclaim. And so, Father, we rejoice in that gospel, having heard of its uh, fame for your name in so many different ways already tonight. And so now as we look to your word to see the same, uh, help us, O oh God. It's the cry of your people, even in the night, that your word would work in our hearts by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. You guys can have a seat. I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. And we will be in verses 12 through the first part of verse 18. Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. Now, as you turn there and as we begin, I want to tell you about a man named Zach Hample. A man by the name of Zach Hample. He is what experts and media professionals call a ball hawk, a ball hawk. You see, Zach Hample collects baseballs, and not just any baseballs, baseballs that he catches or collects at MLB baseball games, Major League Baseball games. He claims, at least, to have collected more than 12,000 baseballs from Major League stadiums in his lifetime. Uh, including Alex Rodriguez's 3,000th career hit and Mike Trout's first career home run, to name a few. And without saying too much, Hample is not liked on the internet by sports writers and fellow fans and even players. Because Zach Hample, notoriously, on several occasions, has been seen bumping into children to get them out of the way in efforts of grabbing a baseball. Coming from someone who has caught a grand total of zero baseballs at MLB games, it sure does seem like 12,000 has got to be an exaggeration, even if you are boxing out small children in the process. 12,000 baseballs is a whole lot. Regardless of its truth, uh, the number of 12,000, Zach Hample is a man on a mission. You see, he's not at the baseball game for peanuts and Cracker Jacks. He wants to catch and hoard baseballs. Now, from the perspective of a baseball fan, someone who bleeds orange and black, sorry, those of you who bleed blue, isn't he kind of missing the point in going to baseball games to just get baseballs? I mean, from the perspective of someone who actually enjoys America's pastime, and yes, it is, you're supposed to be there to enjoy the game, right? Think of how many amazing moments Mr. Hample has missed out on while he stands in the street outside Wrigley Field, or he's in a canoe in right field of Oracle Park, or he bickers with security at Mile High Stadium. He has missed seeing so many 
great playoff moments and home run records set, all because he's dialed in on trying to get the baseball. He's chasing baseballs like the Grinch. As silly as this sounds, this is how we are with life. I know it's a broad statement, but we, Zach Hempel, our way through our existence on this planet. We are that man or woman on a mission, and while it certainly wouldn't be about baseballs, it's probably not all that different. You see, in your mission to start a career or pursue a path or become a thing in this society, I wonder if you are pushing other people out of the way to get what you need. I wonder if underneath all of the pleasantries, life is undoubtedly and unabashedly just about you and nobody else. Tonight as we approach God's word, my challenge to you is to consider what you are here for. Not tonight or not even at UCLA, but what is the purpose that God has for you in life, in your existence on this planet? And then, and only then, how should that define this season of life that is college? You see, there is a mission far greater than your personal mission in this life, and it's the mission of God himself, the mission of the gospel going out to the nations, that what we believe as Christians must be preached. That message of the gospel must go forth to all people. Our Savior himself commissions all of us in Matthew 28. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And yet we think, you know what, that mission is for someone else. That, that mission is for someone else far more committed. That is for someone else more extreme than I am. That is someone with more time because I'm too busy for that. that. That's for someone that's more passionate about Jesus than, than me. You see, in this season where you are literally here at UCLA to figure out what your mission is in life. In a season where you are building your own kingdom, resume line by resume line. This is admittedly a plane of existence, a, a world, a, a whole reality that you don't tend to operate in. But in our passage tonight, Paul is this striking example of a man with the heart after God's mission. And friends, it is not just Paul's heart, it is the Christian heart. That is, if you know Jesus savingly, this ought to be your heart, and increasingly so, day by day. So look at Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and we'll read verses 12 through the beginning of verse 18. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Father, help us by your Spirit, through your Word, to be convinced and convicted of what your Word has to say. And that is that we are to be men and women after your own heart. That your glory would be put on display because the gospel goes forth. And let that be our priority, even tonight, as we see in your word, in Christ's name. Amen. What makes Paul think of his own imprisonment in this way? What allows Paul to see scathing opposition as part of God's plan? What makes David and Channing go across the globe to dedicate their lives to gospel work? What makes the godliest people you know pray for missionaries every day and host missionaries and expend energy and resources towards supporting God's work around the world? This passage shows us it's the Christian heart. It's a heart that is not only anchored to the precious promises of eternal life, but one that is absolutely convinced of the greater mission of God's kingdom, a kingdom far greater than the sandcastles we create in this life. I believe in this season, that is college, it is crucial for you to cultivate a heart for the mission of the gospel, such that your mission and God's mission increasingly become the same thing, that your desires would be his desires, that your goals and your hopes would be of his kingdom and not your own, that your citizenship would be truly, as chapter 3 of this great epistle says, in heaven and not of this world. And so in this passage, we will see that for the Christian, there is a mission far greater than all our this earthly endeavors in the mission of the gospel. We'll see tonight that the heart of the Christian finds joy in the progress of God's kingdom, not one's own. The heart of the Christian finds joy in the progress of God's kingdom, not one's own. And we'll see that in three marks of a heart on God's kingdom mission. Three marks of a heart on God's kingdom mission. The first we see in verses 12 through 14, and it's a heart on God's mission acknowledges providence. A heart on God's mission acknowledges providence. Here in these verses, Paul gives his Philippian supporters a missions update. We're reminded in these verses, very much so, this is a letter to a church from a missionary. This is a little bit, in these verses, some, some MailChimp action. It's an update. By the way, sign up for the child's email updates. They're good. 
You see, where normally we would expect glowing reports of conversions, reports of churches planted, training institutes established, Paul has instead a rather dismal dispatch from the mission field. You see, Paul, the great apostle and frontier missionary, this formidable force of the mission of the early church, he is confined to a Roman prison. He's stuck. And it is not the news that the Philippian church would have wanted to hear. And yet as Paul reports to the Philippian church, all he sees is the providence of God. All he sees is the very hand of God orchestrating his life and his ministry and, yes, even his imprisonment. All he sees is God at work, God doing the good work that Paul knows will be faithful to complete. And Paul sees God as well, using him as God's servant to establish the foundation of that same work, but in other people's lives as well. And so he says, look again at verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You see, it would be only natural for someone in Paul's position to be discouraged by the apparent lack of progress as he sits in jail. He's benched, and so he should be bummed. And so to think the way that Paul does here in these verses, this doesn't compute right away to our normal, natural human hearts. What we see here in these verses is spirit-filled, careful, thoughtful, sober-minded, prayerful awareness of God's providence. It's an acknowledgement of God's hand. This isn't Paul's first rodeo, though. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse uh, 23. Uh, Paul is defending his apostleship, and that's the only reason why he gives us this inspired list of the things that have happened to him on the road as a missionary. Otherwise, he wouldn't like to brag, and he tells us about that at the end of this passage here. But let's look at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from the rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fail? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 
Paul has seen God's providence time and time again. And in Philippians 1, where we're at, he sees it very clearly again. Now, we need to define providence in order for us to learn how to acknowledge it. To acknowledge providence, we need to understand what it is. So, congratulations, tonight you are the fourth providence group. Providence is, as John Piper carefully and helpfully writes, briefly, providence is purposeful sovereignty. Purposeful sovereignty. That is to say, God is the creator of all things. God is the sovereign king. He not only created everything, he rules over all that he has created. And in his rule over all things, he has established in his kindness a means for fallen man to be redeemed and to know him. And then for his name to be known by all who would believe. And so providence is God's purposeful ruling over his creation. And the supreme purpose toward which God's providence works is that, that his name would be made known and worshipped through the gospel. And that's what Paul is showing us He sees through prison bars that God is providentially, purposefully working. Many times in ways unknown to me and you, God is working in ways that are wiser and stranger and peculiar to us and often surprising. God is always working in 10,000 ways when we are aware of just one. And he is working specifically to this end that we see in Philippians 1. That more people would come to know Christ. For Paul, despite the fact that on a human level, he is in rather unfortunate circumstances. God is working, not just despite those circumstances, but in and through those circumstances, such that from a divine perspective, these circumstances are not so unfortunate at all. You see, Paul is safe and secure in God's hand, and Paul is being used as God's servant mightily, even in a Roman prison. And my friends, that's what we ought to get better at acknowledging. As we try to catch a glimpse of uh, tonight of a kingdom mission and to emblazon that on our hearts. Uh, we need to get better at acknowledging that God is always working, even in ways that are beyond our finite understanding. And so let's look very briefly at the two examples of God's providence in this passage that Paul recognizes. Apparently, as a Roman citizen, Paul is significant enough of a prisoner to have earned the assignment of a praetorian guard detail. The Praetorian Guard or the Imperial Guard was an elite force of 9,000 in the Roman army. And they guarded Nero's palace and they received double pay and a good pension and they had special responsibilities. The least of those special responsibilities which was being chained to prisoners directly, ankle to ankle. 
prisoners like Paul. What Paul is telling us in these few verses here about the Praetorian Guard and the situation where he's chained to them, that what was a ball and chain to this imperial guard, to Paul, through a divine lens of sovereignty and providence and purposefulness, to Paul, a ball and chain was instead a golden ticket for gospel witness. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. As these guards rotate day and night, day and night to guard this Paul, he opens his mouth and he shares the gospel. And those guards, as they rotate and they gossip around Nero's palace and they talk of this Jesus follower, Paul, and he gains a reputation amongst Nero's household, a reputation of this alien of a man not living for himself but for this Jesus that he would always talk about, who died on a Roman cross. And this Paul says it was for the sins of mankind. And Paul met this Jesus on the road to Damascus. And this Jesus changed Paul's life forever. And so the whole imperial guard and all the rest of the people of Caesar's household now know not just of this humble, otherworldly prisoner named Paul, chained to their ankle by day and night, but they also know of his Savior, Jesus. What beautiful providence. One commentator puts it this way. What looked like defeat was Christ's strange design for victory. Paul himself writes in 2 Timothy 2, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, Paul writes. Paul sees another powerful evidence of providence in his current circumstances. This is another reason for Paul to rejoice in what God is doing. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul sees that his imprisonment has actually emboldened many of his ministry peers. They have seen his boldness, his passion, uh, his tenacity, and they have, as a result, become confident in the Lord, he says, by his imprisonment. And you can imagine these brothers, they think, if Paul the Apostle, called of God, and the greatest missionary the young church has ever known, if he believes in the truth of the gospel and the need for more to hear, such that he is willing to go to prison again for a second time for the sake of this gospel, then what am I doing sitting on my bum? You can just see these brothers in fervent prayer for Paul to be released, then only by the conviction of the Spirit coming to the conclusion. 
we must go. We must proclaim this Jesus too. And so these brothers are much more bold to speak with the word without fear. And Paul sees that and rejoices in that fact that at the cost of his imprisonment, that is nothing if others are bolder to preach the gospel of Jesus. What a small price to pay in Paul's mind. And what purposeful providence in Paul's life. One of the greatest missionaries of the 20th century was Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott at a young age was himself inspired by reading the stories of missionary greats that had gone before him, like David Brainerd or William Carey and Amy Carmichael. To bring a long story short, at the age of 28, after much planning and prayer and language learning and admin and working things out, in the 1950s, things weren't quite as easy as the smartphone. At the age of 28, Jim Elliott, along with four other missionaries, went to the Amazonian region of Ecuador to reach the Waurani people. And on a fateful day in January of 1956, Jim and his four friends were killed by spear by the Waurani people, the very people they had set out to reach. Martyrs, these five, sold out for Christ, and yet met with rejection and death. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's bride, his dear wife, would carry on his missionary work with the Waurani people. It would take years, but many would be converted. Elizabeth Elliot would go on to write several books about Jim's life and the gospel work they did. And these books have inspired thousands in the years since, thousands of people to also pursue missions themselves. And so David Brainerd and William Carey and Amy Carmichael, who, who spilled out their lives for the gospel, inspired Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who have inspired so many more. And for Jim, it cost him his life. But in God's providence, he has inspired so many people to do kingdom work. John Piper talks about that story this way. He says, if he must, God will use the suffering of his devoted emissaries to make a sleeping church wake up and take risks for God. This is what God has done through Jim Elliott. And what I believe, if we are open to God's work in our lives and in our hearts that God will do, that he will wake us up to his providence, always working, always good, always for the supreme purpose that the good news of Christ be proclaimed. What part are we to have in that mission? Friends, our acknowledgement of God's providence in our lives is fuel for the fire that is a heart on kingdom mission. Even when you can't see it, even when you are unsure of how God is working, the very awareness and confidence that God is working, even in ways you don't know, 
is ample cause for humble worship and sacrificial obedience to go and preach the gospel and ample cause for deep trust and fervent faith. And so friends, a heart on God's mission acknowledges providence. Secondly, we see in this passage, a heart on God's mission prioritizes kingdom progress. A heart on God's mission prioritizes kingdom progress. Here in the second half of this text, we see Paul's example in prioritizing the advance of the gospel over himself. Paul prioritizes the advance of the gospel over his own mission, his own advancement. Paul, as he crosses the deep waters of this season in his life, as he sits in prison, as he crosses these deep waters, he holds almost protectively above his head this ultimate priority in his heart and its gospel progress he holds over his head to keep it dry and safe and above all else in his life. As Paul sits in prison, there are two groups of preachers that have emerged to fill Paul's shoes and his void that he's left in the early church. And in Paul's view of these two groups of preachers, we see both the priority in his heart for gospel progress that ought to be in our hearts also, but we also see an example in Paul of Christ-like character in response to others who minister differently than we do. In these verses, we see that this is the kind of people we ought to be as gospel progress people. When in both ideal and non-ideal situations and relationships, we rejoice when, bottom line, the gospel cause is advanced. First, there are those who are preaching Christ in verse 15. Look there. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. There are those who preach Christ out of this envy and rivalry, a very personal motive here that is obvious to Paul. You see, these individuals are resentful of Paul and his ministry and his success and even maybe his calling as an apostle. These preachers are ready to compete with and combat Paul for influence. Now these words envy and rivalry are found together throughout the New Testament in several very distinct places. I want to just turn with you guys and look at one in Galatians. Look at Galatians 5. Galatians 5 verse 19. This may seem like a stretch as we read these verses, but you'll see what I'm saying here. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, 
drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In that list that we often call a vice list, Paul says himself, those who are of envy and rivalry, uh, jealousy and spiritual competition are not worthy of the kingdom of God. Another place these two words are found is in Romans 1. Don't turn there, but know that what these two words are characteristic of is what Romans 1 calls the debased mind. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul uses these same two words again to describe a false teacher with an unhealthy craving for controversy. And so the manner in which these brothers are doing ministry in Philippians 1, to turn back there, is, is sketchy. It's borderline. Uh, the language here dictates that there may be reason to call into question well, where they're at. Not only are these men envious and spiritually con- competitive, rivalrous, look at verse 17. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They are shamelessly using the gospel for selfish gain. Completely lacking in any sincerity in their ministry. In fact, Paul says, in their ministry, they are hoping to inflict further hurt on the Apostle Paul. More than he already could sitting in prison. These hypocrites are preaching the gospel on one hand, yet they are loving the limelight, and they are mocking the sidelined apostle all along in the process. And I think before we go further, we have got to examine whether there is any sort of such spirit in any of us. Whether as we do ministry and lead small groups and join ministry teams, as we participate, rightfully so, in the good work that God is doing here at Grace on Campus, and by God's grace, praise God, we ought to examine whether there exists this kind of selfish ambition, whether there is any manner of ministry envy amongst each other, whether there is spiritual competition. Are you taking the ministry of the gospel of grace and turning it into some kind of rat race? Are the people around you fellow runners in the race of faith? Or are you constantly trying to outpace everyone around you? As you see others with a different ministry than yours, do you rejoice at what God is doing? Or do you judge Do you compare? When someone has a different capacity than you do, uh, when someone has a different style than you do, when someone has a different approach than you, what is in your heart? Is there joy in gospel progress, no matter how slow or no matter what style? Or is there a spirit of self-righteous comparison? It's what we ought to examine tonight. Because as those redeemed by amazing grace, 
seeking even tonight to cultivate a heart burdened for the mission of the gospel. Would we, Grace on Campus, repent of any sense of spiritual competition we are entertaining within? We need to take the ministry scorecard that we keep in our hands and rip it up and throw it away. And yet amazingly, it is clear here that against this backdrop of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition, that it is clear Paul believes truly and fully that God can even work through these hypocrites. Paul believes that God can and will use even the most imperfect of human instruments. You see, in Paul's mind, these individuals are at least preaching truth. If we were to look at Galatians 1.8, we would see Paul condemn, uh, say, let him be accursed if there's someone preaching, he says, a different gospel or another gospel than the one that we gave to you. Yet here in Philippians 1, these preachers have all kinds, all manner of ill intent in their hearts, but Paul recognizes they are preaching the true gospel. They are proclaiming Christ, and Paul simply rejoices in that fact, and he prioritizes in that gospel progress above himself. Paul speaks of a second group of ministers in these verses. We see them in verses 15 and 16. But others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. These people preach Christ from goodwill. And in verse 16, out of love, knowing that full well Paul is imprisoned for the gospel, the intention is completely opposite of what we just looked at. You see, as opposed to those thinking and intending to afflict Paul further, as they hope Paul hears in the prison from the reports by Titus and Epaphroditus and Timothy that their ministry is going well in this city and that one, they hope Paul is jealous when he hears of that. That's the first group. This second group is faithful individuals who know Paul's in prison and they operate instead out of the reality of their actual relationship with Paul and the sincerity of his ministry to them. Many of them probably coming to saving faith because of his ministry. And so with them, there is goodwill and love toward Paul and toward all those to whom these people minister. It is evident in their proclaiming and in their living that 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 is true of them. It says this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's these ministers of the gospel. It is of the inherent gladness, the joy of their hearts in the gospel changing their own lives that they then go and proclaim Christ, and Paul recognizes that. Their hearts are not divided like the hypocrites in the first group. These men preach the truth and live out the truth with full integrity. These brothers embody pure motives, a genuine love for the lost. They reflect the good will that God himself through Christ has toward men. 
Grace on Campus, this is how we should approach ministry. Uh, with a pure and simple love and goodwill toward other people. Uh, that God's kingdom would progress and advance. That being our priority. Paul himself writes of this spirit, this attitude in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ's sake. Now, as we understand the obvious motives of both groups, of these individuals, we expect Paul would support those operating out of love and goodwill and for him to, in some way, condemn those ministering in envy and rivalry. But what does Paul say? Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is such a model of grace here. He, he exercises humility and patience and self-forgetfulness of a true saint. He, he knows he has been forgiven much, and so he forgives. This is a heart that prioritizes gospel progress one that longs to see the truth of God's righteousness revealed go to the ends of the earth. And so whether in hypocrisy or integrity, whether in envy or in peace, whether rivalry or true partnership, whether selfishly ambitious or God-glorifying, whether in hateful pretense or in loving truth, if Christ is proclaimed Paul rejoices, and we ought also to rejoice against everything that may have been raging in his soul as these selfishly ambitious ministers tighten screws on the jail doors. Paul is like Christ, the meek and humble servant seeking only to do the will of the Father. And we ought to be that same way. What humility we're called to. What self-denial for the sake of the gospel's progress. Only people who have been truly transformed by the gospel can respond like this to such opposition. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, and patient when wronged. Sinclair Ferguson uh, describes it or understands it this way. He says, we learn from Paul that recognizing false motives and even errors in others need not produce an unchristlike temperament. So long as the one concern of our lives is to honor Christ, we will be safeguarded. Motives matter, but we must never allow the motives of others to devour us. Grace on campus, this is so hard. So quickly our egos, our own self-respect, even our own idea of what is good and right and true about ministry from our perspective, 
our defense of the gospel as we think it to be. All of that gets in the way of this kind of love and gracious demeanor that we need to have when somebody else has got it all wrong up in here. Uh, Yet we see here in Philippians 1, as we put together this concept of a heart on mission for God, we must learn to respond in this way. Because what drives this is a heart that understands the non-negotiable priority of gospel progress. What drives this mission is a heart that knows and is confident that God is working even despite selfishly ambitious bonehead ministers. Life is and ministry is far too full of sin and imperfection in even servants of God. We, we ought to not know so well that we should hold everyone around us to a standard of perfection. We ought to, like Paul, extend grace and, and prioritize the progress of the gospel such that we don't even want to slow the progress down with our critiques and our judgments and our hot takes. We ought to demonstrate the character of those who truly believe humility, patience, long-suffering when we perceive the imperfect ministry of others who preach the true gospel. Friends, if nothing else, we must realize that if God is using us for his glory, he can use anybody. That's the second mark of a heart on God's mission. It prioritizes gospel progress, kingdom progress over self. Lastly and briefly, we see a heart on God's mission rejoices in Christ proclaimed. So a heart on God's mission rejoices in Christ proclaimed. There's just one more principle to pull from this passage tonight as we construct this picture of a heart after God's kingdom mission. Uh, Not only are we to be more keenly aware that God is always providentially working, and not only must we hold the priority of gospel progress far above ourselves, here in verse 18, we must, as Paul does, rejoice, take joy in Christ being proclaimed. Uh, That is the life goal, that is the end of the road, that is the ultimate priority for the Apostle Paul, that the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed to all the nations, Uh, that the good news that God in his great mercy and love designed and delivered a plan that by his own son, Jesus Christ, even the most unrighteous of men could be justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ that that message of Christ is proclaimed, that is Paul's priority. That is Paul's joy. Not robotically so, not contrived to be so. It is Paul's highest joy. It is where his affections lie. It is what his heart truly desires most of all. It is what he cares about. It is what he wants. 
This joy is the very essence of Paul's heart for gospel progress. You see, this joy is the reason that Paul can respond the way he does to his imprisonment. This joy is the reason that he can love and forgive the haters. Because his joy, his affections, his emotions, his feelings even, and his right thinking is tethered to the advancement of the gospel. We all probably have a friend or a relative who is really into investing. You know, kids watch Coco Melon. College people watch League of Legends playthroughs. These people, like your friend or your uncle, they watch Graham Stephan or Humphrey Yang, or if they're old enough, they watch Dave Ramsey clips at the dinner table. When you are with this person, you can feel in your bones when the market is down. You just know it. And when the market is up, life is good. There is a direct correlation in this person's life. Sadly, truthfully, between the market and this person's mood, this person's life. Paul shows us here how our hearts ought to be this way too. We ought to like him, buy up all the stock we can in gospel progress. And the market trend of gospel progress is always up. Every day is a good day being invested in God's kingdom mission because Christ has promised he will build his church and the gospel will go forth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. And so we can find endless joy in being part of the kingdom mission. The best way to understand the nature of this mission is, is what Andrew read earlier in Colossians 1.28. Turn there again just because you need to see that passage and you need to Underline it or circle it or something. It's a, an important passage. For, uh, uh, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, verse 29, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. It's the person and work of Jesus that is Paul's joy. The God-man, the sinless sacrifice, and the redemption and transformation we find in him, and therefore the growth in Christ's likeness in Colossians 1, that is for everyone who knows him from one image of glory to the next, beholding our Savior. That is the content of Paul's rejoicing, that that Christ be proclaimed to every man and woman on this earth. Paul's joy in Colossians and in Philippians is being a part of presenting others mature in Christ, in partaking in gospel work. This is the lens through which we ought to see others more simply. Our desire, our joy, should be more often than not that somebody else 
be presented more mature in Christ. That ought to be our only thing we think of somebody else sometimes. That in every interaction we have with them, however brief, we ought to be seeking to present that person more joyful, more content, more satisfied, more happy in Christ. That should be our joy. And when our gaze is averted from this idea of the image of Christ being formed in others, you know, I know, we begin to get real picky. We start to judge and nitpick and we major on the minors. But Paul is saying here, this joy in Christ being proclaimed, what it means is that when others are presented more mature in Christ, when others grow, when others find success in ministry, when others get the position that even we wanted, our joy ought to be found in seeing that. You see, to have a heart bound to the kingdom, mission of God, is to find our highest joy in life, in the furtherance and the fruit of the gospel. It is to look outside of ourselves and outside of our earthly pursuits and outside of our earthly possessions and to cling to the transcendent joy found first in Christ, formed in our hearts, and then in others. What's the first thing you do when you go somewhere new? Uh, when you go on vacation or when you go uh, to the hotel room maybe and you settle into your room, well, what do you do when you sit on the, uh, on the bed? You take out your phone and you look for Wi-Fi. That's what you should do. You see, in every station in life, every room you pass through on your way through these pilgrim days into eternity, there is one thing. And one thing only that Jesus himself says you ought to look for, that you ought to seek. And I think this is a word for our stuff-seeking, job-finding, uh, opportunity-searching, this earthly-focused, anxious hearts on a week eight. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall I eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In this, friends, what is the kingdom of God? What must we seek? Well, Philippians 1 has shown us tonight that we must seek and find joy in the kingdom priority wherein Christ is proclaimed and the gospel advances. And in that we rejoice. Would tonight be the beginning of a season in your life where you cultivate a heart that finds joy in the progress of God's kingdom mission. Not your own mission. Let's pray to that end.